Welcome to my study. I trust that uh, you've had a blessed week, that you have known the Lord's uh, goodness to you in uh, keeping you, supplying your every need, protecting you, guarding you going out and your coming in. Thank you for joining us once again as we continue to, to study this prayer that is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel and the sixth chapter. Because prayer is so crucial and vital in the life of a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus deals with us here in this prayer, and he gives both an extensive and intensive treatment. This Lord's Prayer uh, states the, the, the principles that govern our praying, uh, sets the pattern that becomes a model for our praying, and thirdly, gives to us the priorities that we are to observe when we pray. As we have noted in past messages, uh, following the invocation, those words, Our Father, who is in heaven, we come to six petitions. In the first three, we are expressing our concern for God himself. We're praying that his name will be hallowed, that his kingdom will come, that his will shall be done on earth. From those three your petitions, we then come to three us petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us in the way of righteousness. Lead us from temptation. Guard us from temptation. So we're dealing first of all with the Father's glory and then with the grace that comes to the Father's family. Today our text is found in the 12th verse of that 6th chapter. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I want you to notice that this is the only petition the Lord gives, repeats, and then comments upon. For after verse 12, you come to what he says and recorded in verse 14 and verse 15. Still thinking about forgiveness, he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Now why is it that he, that he, he gives to us this petition and then underlines it, as it were, and then comments upon it? Well, I, th I think to at least to some degree is because he knows us. That saying, I forgive you, or I'm sorry, are very hard words we find to say. They almost seem to s stick in our throat. We can't get them out. I forgive you. I'm sorry. 
knowing that the the, the sense that the, the the spite that we entertain at times, the resentment that we have, the bitterness we show, even the revenge and the payback, these things at times rule in our hearts. And yet as long as we give them a home in our hearts, what an abomination it is to the God of grace. So, what what is there to learn from this fifth petition? Well, my first point today is this. Forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Christ. Embodied in the gospel of Christ. Because what is the gospel? Well, it's the message of the word of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he would uh, uh, put the gospel, as it were, in a nutshell. I'm going to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 3 and 4. Listen to his words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here's the essential facts, the key truths. He died, was buried, and rose again. And they constitute the, the basic elements of the gospel. And you will notice that the apostle says they all are in accordance with the scriptures, the word of God. That the doing and the dying and the rising up again of Jesus were all in line with God's plan of redemption revealed in the scriptures are our Old Testament. Now, the, the scriptures that Paul refers to here, the, the Old Testament as we have, were divided up into the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And Paul argues that what happened to Christ was in accordance with these three scriptural divisions. You read the law and you find the law demanded Christ's death. They studied Leviticus. The Psalms depicted Christ's death. Read the 22nd Psalm. And the prophets declared Christ's death. Isaiah 53. So what is the gospel? It is a message of the word of God. But then in addition to it, it is the ministry of the grace of God. In that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the gospel, and then he gives his testimony in light of it. I'm referring to verse 10 of that 15th chapter. Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So what is grace? Well, somebody has taken that word and those letters and formed this, this little uh, aspect and element and saying that grace is 
great riches at Christ's expense. Great riches at Christ's expense. And, and this records what the apostle writes in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For we read these glorious words. Second Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He who was rich became poor, humbled himself, took the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so says Paul, salvation is by grace. You have been saved by grace alone. For by grace have you been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is God's unmerited and undeserved favor. Meaning that the, the gospel is about a rescue, it is about redemption, it's about a renewal, it's about a salvation that comes to us freely from God, entirely from God, in spite of ourselves. We, we have no right to salvation because our sins had separated us from our God and we loved our sins more than God. And that's why this petition comes to us, to acknowledge these things and to confess before God what we're really like. That we really deserve nothing but the punishment by God and banishment from the presence of God. But God has redeemed us. God in his grace has come to us. God has brought salvation to us. This is the gospel. The gospel is the, is the message of the word of God. It is the ministry of the grace of God. And then it's about the mercy of a pardoning God. And this is what is implied here in this, our prayer and this fifth petition. Forgiveness is being requested. The fact of our sin is being acknowledged. Sin in the sense of the, the debt that we owe to God. The language of the prayer, forgive us our, our debts. A, a term that highlights the fact that we have failed to give back to God the love that is his due. That we have failed to, to give back to God uh, uh, and to render to him what he requires of perfect obedience. The fact that we have failed to offer the worship that is suitable to him. We owe him. We owe him, in a sense, our very existence. Every breath we take. Every heartbeat we feel. Every step we make. Is a gift of God's grace to us. But our sin, the sinful hardness of our hearts, the sinful blindness of our eyes, the, the, the sinful dullness of our ears, 
has deadened us till we cannot tell how much we owe. And so we fail to recognize that, as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote, sin is the worst debt because it carries men in case of non-payment to a worse prison than any upon earth, even to a fiery prison. And the sinner is laid in worse chains, chains of darkness, when he is bound under wrath forever. And yet for all that, for all that marks and mars us, for all that shows us our sin and sinfulness, Jesus invites us. He gives to us the very words, as it were, to pray to the Father. Father, forgive us our debts. Because our God is a gracious God, a merciful God, a pardoning God. But Paul would instruct us in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 7. He would instruct us that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses in accordance with the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. He's telling us this good news of the gospel that there, there is forgiveness. A forgiveness that comes because of the shed blood of Christ, heaven's beloved Son. And a forgiveness which is so thorough and so complete and so perfect that our iniquity is taken away. Our sin is covered. It's blotted out. It's cast into the depth of the sea. Like lead, it sinks to the bottom. God puts our sin behind his back, as it were, and he says, I will remember your sins no more. Through the forgiveness, the blood of Christ, there comes restoration of fellowship so that we can come and pray to God. We can have that, this intimate relationship with God as our Father in heaven. We can commune with God. It's no wonder Samuel Davies in his wonderful hymn asked the question, Who? Is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? What does the scriptures promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, forgiveness is embodied in the gospel. And I wonder if you know these things. I wonder if you're rejoicing in these things. I wonder if you're experiencing the mercy and the grace of God. In, in the words of the old hymn, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? No, my friends, lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Forgiveness is embodied in the gospel of Christ. But then my second point today is this. Forgiveness is essential to our growth in Christ as believers. Forgiveness is essential to our growth in Christ. 
Because you see, what are, what are the abiding marks? What's the consistent, constant characteristic of someone who has been to that fountain filled with blood? What is the, the fruit of faith in Christ? The distinguishing trait of Christian characteristics. What are the characteristics of a believer? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. As long as we're in this world and this body of flesh, we will sin day by day. Anyone, says Scripture, who says he has no sin, is a liar and the truth is not in him. And as long as we remain, even as believers, the, 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 the awareness of sin is used by the Spirit of God to convict us and, and to send us to that fountain constantly for pardon and for cleansing. That this petition the Lord gives to us becomes very precious to us and very personal to us because it addresses my need. It addresses who I am, a sinner before a gracious, pardoning, merciful God. That, that while the fountain filled with blood from Emmanuel's veins are there for our initial cleansing, it's also that fountain to which we need to constantly return. Professor John Murray put it in these words. It is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning. It is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart in the tears of confession and contrition. The way of sanctification, that is growth in Christ, is the way of contrition for the sins of the past and of the present. Now we live in a culture of just do it. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Bob the Builder uh, mentality. Can we do it? Yes, of course. Yes, we can. No doubt at all. But Christian growth stands in stark contrast. Uh, our growth comes from our confessed weakness. What was the lesson of Paul and Second Corinthians 12. Oh, he prayed. He, he prayed three times that whatever that was troubling him would be removed. And God said, no, 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 no. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul was conscious of his weakness. You read Romans 7, where he pours out his heart, where he tells us what it's like to live the Christian life, what a Christian experiences in life. His weakness. Now, why this role? Why, in fact, did the Lord in saving us not, not, not make us perfect immediately, right away? Why leave us to, to wrestle with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? Why does the Lord so deal with us until we, we, we have to honestly admit that within, within us dwells no good thing? Why? so that we will trust in ourselves and our abilities and our talents and our learning and our power and our positions less and less and more and more trust and delight 
in Christ alone. Now, I've, I've never really been one to play with dolls. And so what I'm about to say, I've gleaned from my reading rather than first-hand experience. Because, you see, I'm told that Barbie doll has a flaw, believe it or not. She has a flaw. She cannot stand on her own two feet. She has been designed by her makers to need to wear high heels if she is to stand. She needs to be wearing high heels all the time. She was never designed to stand alone. And neither have we. Neither have we. We are marked by a bent to sinning. We are marked by imperfections, the fact and fruit of sin. That weakness was acknowledged by our Lord who said to his followers, Without me, you can do nothing. And this is why he shows us our weakness, that we might go to him, that we might hope in him, that we might find our strength in him, that we may be enabled by him, that he will become increasingly real and necessary and precious to us. Never designed to go it alone, but to know him on our right hand. Sanctification, my friends, or growth in grace is simply learning that lesson that we cannot go it alone. We need him by our side. Confessed weakness. And then Christian growth also comes by way of our confessed waywardness. Think of that man, Job. The prophet refers to him as he does Noah and Daniel as one who was preeminently righteous. God called him a perfect and an upright man. But how did Job see himself? How did Job understand himself before God? Behold, he says, I am vile. I am vile. Read the epistles of Paul. And read them in their chronological arrangement and what, what you find. Listen, listen to his confessions as you work through the epistles. In, in 1 Corinthians, that we believe one of his, one of his first letters, he says, I am the, the least of the apostles. I, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. A little bit later, he wrote Romans and he said, O wretched man that I am. A little while later, he wrote Philippians and he said, Not that I've already achieved it. Not that I've already reached the goal. Not that I've already become perfect, but, but I, I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on. In one of his final letters to his son in the faith, Timothy, he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I am the foremost. As Paul grew in grace, the awareness of himself became less and less. The horrors of what he was like increased. It was not, not, not the upward path of I'm getting better and better each day and I'm getting stronger and stronger each day. It was the reverse. The increased awareness of his sin, his weakness, 
his waywardness and his wickedness. Because the lesson is this, the most godly and the most gracious are the most remote from pride and vainglory. The more we have to do with God, the more we shall see and feel our nothingness and our unworthiness. It has been said, what can make us so sensible of our ignorance as his wisdom, our weakness as his power, our pollution as his purity? And so here we are in prayer. We've come into the closet. We've closed the door. We're shut up with God. We're having communion with God. We're, we're praying for the hallowing of his name, his kingdom to come, his will being done. We're thanking him for his daily provisions. And yet there is that increasing awareness that we, his children, have fallen short of his glory. We've not walked aright. We've not witnessed aright. We have not worshipped aright. And so we pray, honestly, humbly, forgive us our debts. Because never forget, my dear friends, this, this, this prayer was who, was, who was it designed for? It was designed for his disciples. This was a prayer our Lord was teaching his followers. This is the required forgiveness of those who follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, who is the light, the closer we get to him, the more we recognize our weakness and our waywardness. Forgiveness, the owning of our sinfulness, is essential to our growth. And so my third point for the, today is this. Forgiveness is the evidence of our grace from Christ. You see, there's some confusion that would seem to arise over the words that you find in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, because it appears to, 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 to some that these verses would, would teach that, that God's forgiveness of us is conditional upon our forgiveness of others, a, a quid pro quo, uh, you know, a, a favor is granted in return for something. So God is saying, well, look, you know, if, if you forgive others, then, then I will forgive you. Now, while there is indeed a connection between our forgiveness received from God and forgiveness to others, it's, it's not pro quid quo Matthew, Matthew's fifth petition here that's recorded has basically five points number one God has graciously forgiven us number two therefore we are to forgive others by that grace that we have received number three if we don't forgive others we are showing actually that we know very little if nothing about being forgiven because number four, forgiven people, that is, people who've been graced by God, forgive others. They share that grace and show that grace. So number five, our forgiveness of others does not earn God's forgiveness because his forgiveness is by grace alone. To put it simply, our forgiveness of others is the fruit, is the very proof that we have been forgiven. 
God's grace to us is evidenced by the grace that we give and show and display and pass on to others. It's because we have received that grace from God that God calls upon us now to be gracious with others. Gracious to others. Because freely have we received. And so we are to freely give. For for an, an explanation or illustration of, the, of this very point, you simply have to, to read the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. When Peter said to Jesus, how, how often should I forgive? But let me let me wind up this little study together by reading you a testimony. Now, it's going to take a couple of minutes, but bear with me. It's worthwhile. It's a lovely story. It's the story of my dear friend, Dr. Aksa Him, a Cambodian. And and I want to read it to you because it's in his own words. It's his, it's his testimony. So sit back and enjoy this and learn from it. I'm reading. During the years of 1975 to 1979, the once beautiful and prosperous country of Cambodia became a killing field when two million innocent Cambodians died of starvation, disease, overwork, or by execution at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Thirteen members of my family, including my parents, were brutally executed. I was hit from behind and fell into the grave on top of my father. Other bodies fell on top of me. The soldiers hacked wildly at us, but in their frenzy they missed me. Then, assuming everyone was dead, the soldiers went off to find other victims, leaving their grave open. When I gained consciousness, I could taste death, I could smell death. The blood flowed through my nose and mouth. After about half an hour, I managed, though I was very weak, to move out from under the dead bodies. For several days, I stumbled around in the jungle before I wandered back into my home village. Amazed, the people welcomed me, touching and hugging me, and speaking consoling words to me. A few years later, I was able to locate my only surviving sister and one of my aunts and her family, and I went to live with them. But I wanted to get away from Cambodia. And so in 1984, I ran away to a refugee camp on the border of Thailand and eventually to Canada. I arrived in Canada in 1989 at a World Vision Center, a place that seemed like heaven to me. So many Christians took me to their hearts. They showed me Christ's love, a love that had taken him to a cruel death on a cross to pay the price for my sins. He was the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was all new to me and wonderful to me. It touched my bruised and broken heart and helped to restore my soul. I knew that I would never be alone again, for Jesus himself would walk with me. After completing a bachelor's degree at Tyndale University College and a master's degree at Providence Theological Seminary, I settled on for my new life. In Canada. But then in 1996, I faced a major decision. I was invited to return to Cambodia to teach at the Phnom Penh Bible School. I wondered 
how I would cope. Returning to Cambodia forced me to admit that I had been denying the existence of anger and bitterness in my life. Even as a Christian, I had consciously nurtured my personal inner vengeance against my family's killers. I found it hard to forgive because, according to my judgment, the killers were the ones who deserved to die, not my family. Furthermore, I found it hard to forgive because no one had yet asked forgiveness from me. I longed to hear the tremendous admit that what they had done was wrong, that they repent of their evil that they had done to my family. But ultimately, my ability to forgive was birthed out of an awareness of the grace of God in my life. God had forgiven me without any initiative from me. He had sent his son to die for my sins, something I did not deserve. Christ taught us then what we should do, love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, pray for those who ill-treat us. And Raxus said, I realized that forgiving my family's murderers was the only way I could make room for God's love to purify my heart and the only route to praise and to glorify him with joy. To make my mission of forgiveness complete, I decided to journey towards reconciliation with my family's killers. I asked two pastors to travel with me, for I desperately needed their emotional and moral support. In my heart and in God's eyes, I had already forgiven my family's killers, but coming to face them was another matter. The village was a long way from town and most of its residents were former Khmeru soldiers. I realized that they, like me, were broken Cambodians who needed to hear the message of salvation and love of Jesus Christ just as much as I did. When we arrived at the village, I learned that four of the six killers had been killed in the war and only two men had survived. One still lived in the village and the other had moved away. The pastors and I met for three hours with my family's killer. I gave him a scarf, a symbol of my forgiveness for him, my shirt for a symbol of love for him, and a New Testament, a symbol of my blessing for him. As we left, I gave him a hug and said, By the grace of God, go in peace, and may God bless you, and may the spirit of fear subside in you. And Raxa says, On a subsequent trip, I was able to meet the second person. Since it's very unusual for Cambodian people to say, I'm sorry, I did not expect an apology. But unlike the first person, this man said, I feel absolute regret for all that I did to your family. Please forgive me this terrible wrong. These words deeply touched my heart. I was able to tell him that God is full of compassion, that he teaches us to love, not to hate, to forgive, not to take revenge, and that it is the power of God's love that has melted my heart inside my soul. And so Raksa concludes his testimony with these words. Forgiveness is a very personal discovery. 
This discovery led me down a painful road, but beyond the pain it helped me to see the beauty of life. It helped me to look at my scars and know that I am healed. In choosing to obey God, I have reaped a harvest of peace and joy, just as after a heavy rain we see the beauty of a rainbow. Our Father, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. O oh, may the one who searches hearts and minds hear the words of this petition from us, and may he see the reality of that petition being evidenced by us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us for our good and for his glory. Amen.